My name is Chris. If you're new here, I'm one of the leaders on uh, St. Peter's team. Um, I'm training to be a vicar as well. So um, that means Ben has to let me preach every now and then. So let's see how this goes. Um, So I've got a question. Have you ever got mad with someone, had a massive argument, beaten them at that argument, and this has all gone on in your head? And then when you actually talk to that person you realize that you were wrong right from the start and your assumptions were completely out of whack. Um, I have. Six years ago, um, I lived in America um, and Sarah and I were doing long distance. And actually, hello to my friend Tom. We lived in America together and his wife Annie, they're over from Australia. Um, But we lived together in America and um, and Sarah and I were dating. Um, Long distance, if you've ever done long distance dating, is pretty tough. Um, And it's really tough when you are as insecure as I was. Um, Sarah told me she was going on a night out with her friends and for me because I was so anxious this set off loads of anxieties in me and I used to I'd think things like she's going to meet someone else when she goes out she's going to realize she's going to wake up and realize that she's made a mistake dating me I mean how ridiculous is that Um, I'm going to she's going to she's going to finish with me and I'm going to be left all on my own Um, and I'm sharing this cheery story because there's a reason to it Um, But that is what I like to call um, emotional baggage. So um, what happened is, is that Sarah goes out and then the next day I see a picture of her on Facebook and I, um, I'm at a Christian school, so I'm thinking that I know everything. And and I thought her outfit was inappropriate. So I I had a big argument with her in my brain and then we had a disagreement on Skype. Um, and actually, Sarah got really upset. She's like, I tried on three different outfits, and I got my friends to check uh, that it was appropriate. And I'm still thinking, yeah, but I've had this big argument, so I'm right. So I stupidly said, take it to Hanel, because I trust Hanel. Uh, I'm thinking Hanel's going to side with me. Take it with Hanel, and we'll let her decide. Anyway, unfortunately, Hanel decided in Sarah's favor. Um, So then I took it to God and asked God what was going on, and he also ruled it in Sarah's favor. So I just said to God, why am I so insecure, and why am I so unnecessarily fearful? Um, And as I said, that is emotional baggage from my past. Um, So uh, briefly, a summary of my past. I grew up in Devon um, with a family who went to church. Um, I knew of Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus Um, And as a teenager, I decided I I didn't want to go to church anymore. Um, But I would still go along to certain events because my friends were Christians. Um, And so one one year, I think I was about 18, I went along to a small Christian music festival because there's nothing else to do in Devon. So, um, and my friend was doing a gig on a small stage and he was doing a sound check and I decided to go and walk around the festival. To be honest, I was 18, I was probably looking for girls. But like, I walked into a big top tent and there was this massive amount of worship going on in this tent and I remember walking in and I just felt utter peace I felt like this really peaceful moment and I thought to myself that 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 must be God so I prayed in my head God if you exist prove it and I'll follow you the reason I prayed in my head is I was thinking if I pray out loud someone's going to hear and they're going to then say you know God's heard your prayer and stuff so um so do you want to know what happened when I prayed this prayer God if you exist prove it absolutely nothing happened 
Um, two weeks later, my mum and dad, uh, they, they, they started going to a new church. And they said, do you want to come along to our new church? And I was just like, well, no, there's no point. And then my mum, knowing me well, tried to bribe me with a McDonald's. And as tempting as that was, I still said no. I probably already had one. Um, and then she said, um, you should come. Uh, I think you're like the keyboard player. She's really pretty. Um, so I decided to accept the offer of McDonald's and go along to church. And, and I get to this church. It's a really small church in a little like, country hall. And um, this German guy who I'd met once before, this amazing man called Christoph, a good friend of mine, um, he said, um, essentially, I'm really prophetic. Not like in an arrogant way, but he was just like, I'm prophetic, which for those of you who don't know means that you, know, you hear from God. And I want, to, I want to give the youth in the church a message from God. Um, and ignoring my obvious, please don't come and talk to me, body language, he decided to come up and he just said, he, he just said this, two weeks ago you stood in a field and you called out to God, do you exist? And he says, I've heard your cry and he's missed me over the last six years. And it was just mind-blowing for me. I was absolutely aghast. I remember feeling completely speechless, which if you know me, it's quite rare. And, um, and I couldn't sleep all night. I was totally freaked out because I was just like, that was in my head. And it was two weeks ago in this field and God knew that and he was calling me. So um, we'll skip forward five years. I'm now on the worship team. It's a small church. Um, I am a youth pastor and I'm engaged to the keyboard player whose parents are the pastors of the church. Um, but unfortunately, I won't, I won't go into it, but like the church imploded and then within a short period of time, the keyboard player and her parents decided to move to London to do a new church. And shortly after, she broke off the engagement. And I remember thinking to myself, I won't go too much into my past, but like um, I said to myself, Chris, you've got two days to grieve this, then get on with the rest of your life. I mean, how mental is that? Two days to grieve a four-year relationship. All of my hopes and dreams, I thought I was going to be raised up to be a pastor um, and, and to be on a worship team and to marry somebody. Like, all that I thought was going to happen was gone. And I felt totally lost and painfully alone. I mean, no one can recover from that sort of heart wound in two days. And what actually happened is I, I buried my pain. Um, and I constructed a wall around the outside of my heart because I just I subconsciously thought I need to protect my heart so that no one can get in and hurt me again. Um, so why am I telling you this very cheery story? And what has this got to do with the passage um, I, we just read? Um, I, was, I was obviously hugely disappointed. I was heartbroken and I felt let down by people around me. Um, and like Martha in the passage, I thought, Jesus, if he'd only been with us, then this thing wouldn't have died. My, my broken heart entered into a tomb um, where the belief that I was lovable and enough went to die. And this belief that I was lovable and enough, when it died, it started to affect my mindset, my attitudes, my actions and my choices. My heart felt sick and died laying in a tomb and the wall I constructed around my heart wouldn't let Jesus or anybody else in. My heart was Lazarus in the passage that we read, dead in a tomb of brokenness, self-doubt, mistrust and unbelief. And like Lazarus, in death I was wrapped in bandages that they didn't heal my wounds. 
they kept me bound. So they were boundages of, and this is in the years following, more broken relationships, throwing myself too much into work, vanity, alcohol, and lots of other stuff. The list goes on. And actually last week, Ben talked about what do we use to numb our pain? Um, if you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been looking through there's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, and each I am statement has a corresponding miracle. So I am the vine, Jesus produces wine. I am the bread of life, Jesus feeds 5,000. Um, if you want the theological explanation for what we're doing, Ben did a brilliant one last week, so you can listen to the sermon via our website, and he'll give you that. Um, so I am today speaking on the next I am statement, I am Spartacus. Not, obviously not really, that's a joke. Um, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, before I continue, it's really important for me to acknowledge that this passage um, is about death. And that some of us are currently grieving the passing away of a loved one. We as a church have recently lost one of our older members of the congregation, Clemmy. And as um, I actually didn't know her, but I do know from people who do know her how much she'll be missed and how loved she is um, and what a valued member of the community that she was. So I just want to acknowledge that. If you're going through some pain, then at the end, we definitely want to pray for you. Um, so I'm not going to, I don't want to belittle that. So uh, the amazing thing about the Bible is that we often read these passages that are really familiar to us. And that, um, we can become over-familiar with them. And so therefore, like, when, for me, if I pray and read it, uh, then often something new will jump, off, jump up off the page from the passage, something that maybe I've never seen before. And I'm reading this passage, um, and can we get the slide, which is John 11, 3? Um, and I was reading the passage, and I was, I was drawn to this simple phrase. Um, this is so... Mary and Martha um, write a note to Jesus, and it simply says, so the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, to say the very least, Mary and Martha are in a crisis. Their beloved little brother, Lazarus, is on death's doorstep, and I guess that they have kind of pursued all options open to them, and they realize that there's only one answer, and that's that they need a miracle, and there's only one miracle worker, and that's Jesus. So they send, they need Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. They decide to send a note. Um, but Jesus is several miles down the road in a place called Bethany. And the content of this note is supposed to compel Jesus to travel these several miles and to save their little brother's life. Now here is where we discover what Mary and Martha really believe about Jesus. Keep in mind that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are some of the closest people to Jesus on the planet. The penultimate week to Jesus is, uh, before his death, he spent exclusively with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus is one of Jesus' best friends. It's one of his, one of his guys. Um, have you ever read the Bible, those of you who do read the Bible, and kind of anticipated you know what it's going to say, and then when you read it, 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 you've anticipated wrongly? So I'm reading this passage and I'm thinking, oh yeah, they've sent a note to Jesus. And I thought the note said something like, Lord, the one who loves you is sick. And then I read this passage and I also now I read the, the opposite. So I mean, listen to the content of the note. I mean, first let's acknowledge how short this note is. I mean, if you had one note to save your loved one's life, it's not going to be this short. 
you've got one note to save your mother-in-law's life, what's it going to read? Dear God, I know you're busy. Don't worry. No, I'm joking. I love you, Claire. It's my birthday soon. You're, if I had one note to save my sister's life, I would instantly go into her spiritual CV. I'd be like, Jesus, she's one of the good guys. Although she's a girl. Like, Jesus, she is a good mum. She puts other people first. She, she married my brother-in-law. He's got ADHD. That's fun. Like, Jesus, she is compassionate to people. Come on. This is my sister, Jen. This is, come on, Jesus. Like, this is life and death. But what, let's listen to what they wrote. Lord, the one you love is sick. The end. This is what Mary and Martha believe. They believe that what will move God most is his love for Lazarus, not Lazarus' love for him. And this, I would say, is the single most alarming, greatest revelation that started to heal me from the inside out. I mean, what is the focus of the gospel? Is it us loving God or God loving us? I mean, I have to come to the obvious biblical conclusion that the essence of the gospel is overwhelmingly God loving us. Last week, Ben covered the infamous passage of John 3.16. And I guess I'd been reading it like this. For the world so loved God that he saved his only son. But that's not what he reads. Sorry, what it reads. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Incidentally, the word so in that passage is huge. I mean, like, I love KFC, but if I so love KFC, that makes it a bit different. And if I say it to one of my friends, like, say, Danny, like, you know, I love you, Danny. He's like, thanks, mate. If I say I so love you, it's a bit intense, isn't it? It's, a, it's quite a strong statement. What we see is Jesus' friends saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. Early on in the story, we see it in verse 5, that after Jesus gets this note from Mary and Martha, he waits and waits and waits until Lazarus has been dead for four days. And this is to make sure that he is actually dead. First century Jews believed that the soul didn't depart the body for the first three days. And Jesus didn't want any doubt in their minds of what was going to happen. So imagine the scene with me. Mary and Martha are now in complete disarray because of the trauma of losing Lazarus. And they're mad with Jesus now because they thought he loved their brother and he'd come and save him. Jesus' own disciples don't want to go to Bethany where Lazarus is because recently they've been persecuted. And actually Jesus' disciple Thomas even says like, let's just go and die with Jesus then. They actually thought he was leading them into death. I mean, fair play, they actually went. Um, and it's in this moment which feels consumed with death and chaos that Jesus travels to see Mary and Martha and Lazarus and says the cryptic verse in uh, the cryptic saying in verse 25 I am the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die do you believe this Jesus is talking to Martha in this passage, and um, she, as a first century Jew, would have been aware of a passage in an Old Testament book called Ezekiel, where God leads the prophet Ezekiel into a desert, um, and 
Um, this desert is full of dry bones. The valley in the desert is full of dry bones. And this is a picture of death, of dryness, and desolation. In Ezekiel chapter 27, God says, Son of man, can these bones live? God instructs Ezekiel to speak to the dry bones, saying, I, as in God, will make breath enter you and you will come to life. So Martha and many first century Jews believed God would breathe life into them at the end of time and that they would live on in heaven. Um, So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection, they would have had a concept of resurrection. Martha even says, like, I know Lazarus is going to rise at the end of time, but Jesus is now stating, yes, but that will happen through me. He is claiming divinity right there in front of them. And I think so often we can get stuck here and think that religion and faith are all about what happens when we die. But Jesus is emphatically saying that is only half the story. That is not the end. Because he goes on to say, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And you've heard the end of the story. Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb and resurrected back to life. So what does that actually mean for us today? I think if I get you to take one thing away from today, it's this. That you are the one Jesus loves. So quickly turn to someone next to you and say, I am the one Jesus loves. And because you are so loved, Jesus wants to bring parts of you back to life. Or the whole of you if you need it. We sing a song with the line, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. It is the firm foundation that you are so loved by God who is a good father. So what does that look like? For me, it was threefold. In order for me to get rid of my emotional baggage um, and the pain of the past and to be free to pursue good things that God had for me, I had to know just how much God loved me as a kind father. I had to know the father's love. I had to know it for real in here, not just in here. Second, I had to believe that I was the one he loved. That not only did Jesus call me out of a tomb of what Pete Hughes spoke about a few weeks ago, of not feeling good enough. Out of the tomb of pain and brokenness, But Jesus himself went into the grave and died so that I could live again. And third, he wanted to resurrect my broken, damaged, lonely heart and to give me life. And God wanted to do some heart surgery on me for me to let him heal me of the wound of rejection and of loneliness, of not feeling good enough. And he wanted to enable me to forgive people who'd hurt me and also to forgive myself. I'm not going to lie, at times it was, it was painful. God wasn't painful, but actually me facing those deep, dark bits of me that I didn't want to face, they were quite painful. But allowing God to do it with me just made me feel so loved in the process, so safe and secure. It totally changed my life. And to be honest, I didn't just want to know that God loved me. And I didn't just want to know that he was a good father if I remained in my tomb. Like, I wanted all three. 
I needed to know that because I was so loved, Jesus would bring me back to life. My healing started, as I said, was getting to know God as a good father. Getting to know what that really meant. That he is always for me. I think we sang it in one of the songs earlier. I had to get to know that he isn't a father who's absent. He is as close as the air I breathe. He isn't on the edge of his temper, waiting for me to mess up and exploding in rage. He doesn't say to me, this is your mess, you deal with it. He isn't disappointed in me. I am not the one that he loves the least. He is not wanting me to perform for his love. He made me and he loves what he made. Has anyone ever read the book or seen the film Heaven is for Real? One person. There you go, Andrew. Uh, well, for the rest of you, I'm going to ruin it. Um, there's a, in the story, there's a pastor in America and his son, something happens and he dies. Um, and then, uh, thankfully, he comes back to life. Um, but the son in the story, he, he goes to heaven when he dies. Um, and, uh, where am I? Um, and he comes back down and he tells his dad what he experienced in heaven. And so the son says that when I got to heaven, it was a bit scary. He's only a little kid, but it was a bit scary. So God brought his grandfather to him, Pop, to comfort him in heaven. And so the, the, the father's like, you met, you met my Pop, you met dad? And so he shows him a picture of Pop. Uh, in his military uniform and the son says that's not pop so the dad's really confused and as the film unfolds something happens and the dad then shows the son a picture of pop as a child this messes me up and um and the kid says dad that's pop like everybody's a child in heaven and it makes me think like what sort of dad doesn't want his kids to grow up? What sort of father wants us to stay as little children? And there's that bit in Matthew 18 where Jesus says, if you don't become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. For me, it's the sort of father that wants to run around and chase his kids and grab them and put his arms around them. And the sort of father, like I see Ben do it every week, just says, I love you so much. Just grabs him and says, I love you so much. I mean, Ben's kids literally can't do anything for him. They're too young. Two weeks ago, he was covered in vomit for four days. But he adores them and he grabs them and he's like, I love you so much. God is a better, nicer, kinder dad than Ben and than anyone. He doesn't need you to do anything for him. He just loves you exactly as you are, even if we're covered in mess and muck. You are the one he loves so much, and he wants to bring you back to life. What would it look like if we truly believed that Jesus can resurrect our hearts and give us new life? I mean, actually, Jesus says this in verse 25 when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they will die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never but die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? What would it look like if we believed we have a good father in heaven 
who wants to grab us and say, I love you so much. And as Pete said a few weeks ago, and someone said on the stage today, that dad's got this. Dad's got this. When I started to open up my heart to the Father's love, my life changed completely. I started to think differently. I would start to think not only was nothing impossible with God, but why wouldn't he help me if he loves me so much? When I responded to Jesus' call to come out of the tomb of my past and my brokenness, I was able to start trusting people again, which is really big for me. I could learn to trust church leaders again, trust loved ones around me, trust the opposite sex, trust God. And he started to take away a lot of my emotional baggage, not all of it, but he did a massive amount of work that made me, it enabled me to move forward. So I'm just going to bring this into land now. So I just want to take a moment to take a, to close your eyes and ask God what area of your life feels dead at the moment. What part of your life do you need resurrected? Where do you need life? Maybe you feel like you have to perform for love. Maybe you need Jesus to bring life to your family, to your work, to your confidence. Maybe it's your relationships. For me, it was the area of relationships. <laughs>